evening. Our reading today is Genesis 33, and you can find that on page 36 of your church Bibles. Jacob meets Esau. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and the children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He found himself, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him, his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. And now you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and the herds before me and the pace of the children until I come, my Lord, to see her. Esau said, Then let me have some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred piece, hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where the pitch, where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Thank you very much for that reading. Um, before we look at God's word, let's pray together. Let's turn to God in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to be able to open up the Bible, to look at it together this evening. Uh, Callum asked us to pray for different places around the world, and we know, Lord, that there are places where to meet like this, to meet in a home, to meet in any way openly, could be a cause of death, of banishment. And there are folk here tonight who know the reality of that in their lives. So we don't want to take this privilege lightly. We don't want to take it for granted, but we want to rejoice in the fact that we can come 
and we can look at your word together. By your Holy Spirit's power, help us to understand what you want to say to us this evening. Amen. Amen. We're going to be talking about brothers this evening. And I'm very conscious that for a number of people, that is not an easy subject to be looking at. Um, it could be because you don't get on with your brother. We will pass on that one. But for others, you're separated from your brothers. For some of us, our brothers have died. So please be aware that whatever I say, that awareness of any hurt in your lives is something that God knows and God understands. And he is the God of compassion. But let's think about brothers. I grew up, as far as I was aware, I had one brother. I played with him. I think there were times when I fought with him, but we'll pass by on that. I learned to play squash with him. I went to school with him. We swam together. And actually, I saw my brother baptized here in above bar church when he was a student. And that was it, simple, until I got to my late 20s. And then a cousin was visiting, and she was talking to my wife and said, how does Chris get on never seeing his other brother? I think she realized she'd opened her mouth and put her foot right in it. More curiosity than discretion. That was in my 20s, and years went by, and it was, what do I do with that? What was clearly a family secret. And it took some time for me to be able to talk to some others in the family and begin to find out a bit of information. And then, well, it was decades later, we managed to track him down. And the day came when my brother, who was living here in Southampton, and I were trogging up the M1, M3 rather, towards the M1, that junction of M1 and the M25, or the A1 and M25 at South Mims. Now, I'm not quite sure whether it was the thought of having to wend my way through South Mims or what it was, but that journey up the M3 was one where there were many thoughts, many questions going through my mind. There was a real sense of fear. What would we find? What would he be like? What would happen when we met with this man we'd never come across before in our lives? But we had no particular reason to be afraid. But when we look at Jacob, yes, he had reasons to be fearful. The journey that we read about at the beginning of this chapter is a journey that started in, uh, in chapter 31, and it was a journey that would be measured not in hours, but in weeks. And there ahead of him was the brother that he did know, a brother whom he had offended, who he had caused hurt to, in two particular ways. The first one was in relation to a birthright. Esau was the older brother. It was his birthright. But Jacob, the schemer, had managed to trick him into trading the birthright for a bit of comfort food. In the old uh, authorised version of the Bible, you used to talk about a massive pottage, a lentil stew. I'm not sure what I'd have traded for a lentil stew. I'm not a great lover of lentils, but he had. He traded that in for his birthright. And then there was a blessing because in that time, Jacob had deceived his father. He pretended to be Esau. And his father, whose sight was going, had given to Jacob the blessing that should have been Esau's. And Esau, well, we're told, he'd said in his heart, when my father dies, 
I'm going to kill Jacob. And Jacob would run away. He'd run away with the certainty that his mother had said, when Esau calms down, when he forgets about it, I'll send you a message to say it's all right. But that message had never come. So Jacob was returning home with the almost certainty that there awaiting him was a brother who's had death in his heart. And that's where we start our reading. Because the, the third reason he had to be fearful was this. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. An immediate threat, an immediate danger, an immediate reason why he should be afraid. And then we see in Jacob a reaction. And the first reaction we see very clearly is he tells us what mattered to him, the things that really were precious, really important to him. We see it in the division at the end of verse 1, and then it says in verse 2, or verse 3, verse 2. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. For those who haven't been here, we've been looking at the story of Jacob and seen that he had a complicated family arrangement. If you were here a few weeks ago when Chris Sinkinson was with us, he took us through the, the way in which that family had developed. For those who don't remember or forgotten or weren't here at the time, what had happened was Jacob had run away from home. He'd gone to see his uncle, Uncle Laban. And he, when he got there, he'd fallen in love with Rachel. And he'd agreed to serve Laban for seven years in return for Rachel's hand. But the trickster had been out-tricked. And his uncle had set, substituted Leah for Rachel. Then for another, well, for a week later, Rachel also became his wife. He returned for another seven years of service. And then over the years, those two wives introduced their servants, Bilhah and Zilpah. And those two women also bore children to Jacob. I think there's a quote, isn't there, a book called The Go-Between, that the past is a different country. They do things differently there. I think that's about how, the best way to think about Jacob's family arrangements. It was different. But what he shows in this section is just what mattered most to him. He was afraid of what lay ahead of him, so he put the female servants first. So when things went wrong, they could be sacrificed first. Then Leah... And if the worst came to the worst, there would be Rachel and Joseph safe while the others had been sacrificed. There's a story from English history of a, a man, I think we've got a picture of him, called Samuel Pepys. Uh, he was famous in English schooling as, as a man who wrote a diary he wrote a diary at a very particular point in English history, and one of the things he recorded in his diary was of a fire sweeping through London. 
And in his diary, he recalls this one thing he really wanted to protect, and he protected it by burying it in his garden. So that if the fire came past, that thing would be kept safe. And for those who don't know, what he kept in the garden was some cheese. Actually, you don't want to spoil a story by actually telling facts, but the, the reality is that they were, he'd managed to keep all the things of greater worth and got them out of the house already. It was the cheese and the wine that was left behind. But still, it's a great story. And I wonder what matters to us. What are the things that are important in our lives? The things that we spend time, the things that we would protect, the things that we would want to keep safe, Jacob showed the things that mattered to him just in the order that he brought them before Esau. But then we also see something of Jacob coming back from the past. We see this whole chapter, and it is Jacob, Jacob the schemer, Jacob the, the master manipulator at work. It's Jacob who gives the order of play so that he sets out the, the order of those who are going to meet with Esau. It's Jacob who, well, he tries to bribe Esau. It's a plan that he put in place at the beginning of chapter 32. If you go back to chapter 32 and verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau to the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant, Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. And that idea of finding favor is repeated in verse 8 of chapter 33. Esau asked, what's this meaning of these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord. And then Jacob says in verse 10, if I have found favor in your, uh, your eyes, accept this gift from me. And just in case Esau wasn't willing, we read at the end of verse 11, and because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Jacob was trying to bribe Esau. And then just in case the bribe didn't take, Jacob refuses to actually travel along with Esau. Verse 12, then Esau said, let be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the, the ewes and cows. Basically he's saying, let's give me, find me an excuse. I don't actually want to go with you, Esau. Then Esau offers some help. And again, Jacob refuses. And we end the journey with Esau heading off south with all the extra cattle and ewes and things that he's been given by Jacob, he's heading off back home to where he came from, going south. And Jacob just gently, gently, gently disappears over the horizon. He won't trust himself into Esau's hands. What we're seeing is the Jacob of old, coming back. The Jacob who had a point of pressure, a point of fear, 
the point of uncertainty. He just goes back to his old way of living, his old way of scheming, of deceiving, of trying to make sure that he's in control of everything that happens. And I wonder if there are times in our lives when we can see old, bad habits coming back to the surface. I'm glad my brother's not here this evening because he could have told you of some of my old habits. But I was a sulker as a child. The sort of person who would go out to play cricket with his friends and if things didn't go right, I'd take my bat home. And if that was the only bat that they had, well, that was tough because they hadn't treated me fairly and they deserved it. And that wasn't a great look when I was six. It was shameful and embarrassing when I was 16. And to find some of those things coming back to the surface when I'm in my 60s, oh dear. Oh dear. When we become Christians, it's very clear that the penalty from, for sin goes. We're forgiven. We're justified. We have peace with God. And gradually as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, we hope that the power of sin will reduce. It's sometimes said that as we go on in God's service and we continue to know him, then we sin less. But when we do sin, we're more conscious of it. We feel it more. But we're not freed from the presence of sin. That's for heaven. Sin is still part of this world in which we live. It's there in the world around us. It's there in our hearts. It's there from the tempter. And here was Jacob. Jacob at a point of pressure. Perhaps too in a point of place because he was returning to where he'd grown up. He'd returning to the, the places where he'd been when he deceived his father, where he'd tricked his brother. And perhaps there are times too for us that there may be some friends that we meet and we just find ourselves going back into a way of talking or a way of thinking or a way of watching or maybe it's just a place that we used to go to and it brings back old habits old ways of doing things here was Jacob Jacob who revealed that the old Jacob was still there. The Apostle Paul, thinking about it in his life, in Romans chapter 7, gets to the point of saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But what he goes on to say most gloriously is, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And says in chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you recognize in Jacob some of the things that you have done, some of the ways that you have continued to act. First of all, can I just challenge you? 
be honest, acknowledge the reality, but also give thanks that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation because that is where you are protected and preserved by the God who understands and the God who forgives. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we get to the end of the chapter. To chapter 2, verse 20. He's come to the place of safety. He's been kept safe. He's been restored to a place where he can settle down. And it's as though at this moment, in the words of a great philosopher of the 20th, 21st century, I hope, because there'd been something missing in the whole of this chapter. As we look through the chapter, we can see that Jacob is trying to do everything in his own skills, his own strength, his own ability. He's not looking to rely on anybody else. He's not looking for help outside himself. He is simply doing things in his own strength. There's one reference to God, an acknowledgement that God had looked after him, and another reference to Esau having the face of God. But otherwise, what's missing throughout this whole chapter is any reliance on God. God had been missing. And yet at the very end of the chapter, Jacob builds an altar. Because when he got to that point of safety, the promises of God had come true. The blessings that God had promised to bestow on him when he met him at Bethel. The things that God had promised to do when Jacob wrestled with him at Peniel, which we saw Sally taking us through last week. God had fulfilled his promises. God had looked after Jacob. In this chapter, almost despite what Jacob was doing, God had been faithful. He had not allowed Jacob to be destroyed by Esau and his 400 men. He had brought him to the place of safety. And for Jacob, coming to that place of safety was the point at which he acknowledged who God was. For others, it can be a cock crowing, like Peter. Or standing before a burning bush, like Moses. Or hearing a still, small voice, like Elijah. And I wonder if there's anyone here tonight... And you need just something to poke you in the ribs. To say, remember God. And when Jacob remembers God, he remembers him in two ways. The first, well, it's in the name of the, um, of the altar he built in verse, 30, in verse 20. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And for those of you that have got Bibles, you might find footnotes. For those of you that are uh, using phones or tablets or anything else that's electronic, I'm not sure whether the footnotes are there. And different translations have slightly different uh, emphases on how that footnote runs as to what we understand about the altar. But the first thing is it's a reference to L. Do you remember when Nick was preaching some weeks ago 
at Beth-El, the house of God. This is a recognition of the God who is. The God who is mighty. The God who created the universe. The God who is at work in the world of his making. The God who is unchanging in his awesome majesty and glorious power and his great mercy. This is the God who is there. We live in a world where people try and say, well, if we forget about God, he'll disappear. Well, actually, God's a bit bigger than that. He doesn't need us to affirm him. He's the one who made us. He's the one who still sustains the universe by his word of power. This is the God who is. And Jacob acknowledges that certainty about God. But the second thing is he says, he is the God of Israel. And at this point in history, Israel is not a nation state. It's not a people group. It's not even a family. At this point in history, Israel is just one man, Jacob, who had been given the name Israel by God. We read about it in chapter 32. And Jacob is acknowledging that not only is God the great God who is out there, he's also the God who had been interested and involved in Jacob's life. He's the one who kept him safe. He's the one who provided him with a family. He's the one who had guarded him, guarded him and brought him safe back to the place that he had promised. He is the one who, in the words of one of Jesus' uh, followers, is my Lord and my God. And the question for all of us, I hope it's the question that all of us can answer correctly, is how do we move from acknowledging that there is a God out there to a God who is my Lord and my God? One of the songs that we sing talks about a great chasm that exists between us, a mountain that we cannot climb. How do we come to that, cross that chasm? How do we find ourselves in the presence, in the family of God? And the Bible is very clear that there are two things that are needed. The first is something which is external that God did when he came in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and made a way for us to know God. There's an old children's song, incredibly powerful. Some of us will have grown up singing it. It says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And if we are uncertain as to where that starts, it's another hymn that says, it's at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. That was God did, God did in history and time and space when his son came down from heaven, gave his life for us, defeated death and defeated death both in his dying on the cross but also in his rising to life. He did that externally. The gate is open. We may go in, 
but it also requires an internal change, a work of God the Holy Spirit, to apply what Christ achieved on the cross into our lives, to make us new, to open our eyes, to see the need of salvation, to open our eyes in wonder, to acknowledge that there is a saviour for me, even for me. And then to make that change in our hearts that enables us to respond, to call out, to cry out, and to make that transformational change. When Sally was here last week, she closed her message by a verse that one of the early disciples, a man called Paul, wrote, which talks about the transformation that takes place in a person's heart. I'd already finished my preparation with the same verse. I was talking to Sally about it this morning. It's either that fools can't differ or that God was at work. I hope it's the latter. In chapter 5, verse 17 of the second letter, Paul says this, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Do you know that new creation in your life? Do you know that transformational change? God, the Holy Spirit, has made you a new person, a person who in God's good hands will one day be fit to stand before God's throne in heaven. Do you know him as God? My God, my Lord, and my God. Come on.